Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. It's rare that a new four-year university is started anywhere, but not long ago, a few individuals decided that a new university based on an old model was needed, and thus the University of Austin was born. Today, they're just about a year away from opening their doors to their first undergraduate students. Here's a little background on the university. The University of Austin is committed to freedom of inquiry as the precondition for the pursuit of truth. Others have abandoned this core mission of the university. It will be the very foundation of our school and the reason we believe the most curious, innovative scholars and students will want to join us. A bold statement, and it comes from their president, Pano Canelos. Pano is the founding president of the University of Austin. Prior to his new appointment, he served as the president of St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. During his tenure, St. John's successfully launched a historic initiative that included the most significant tuition reduction at any American college. Canos holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, a master's from Boston University, and he spent his undergraduate time at my alma mater, Northwestern University. Pano, good morning and welcome to Austin Next. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We've heard the story a couple of times, but I would love for you to take a moment and tell us the origin story for the University of Austin. Of course. It's always fun to relate it because it feels like, you know, a university origin story should be back in the deep mist of history. And ours is only about a year and a half old at this point. So it's still very fresh. But although actually it's coming up on two years, but the project really took off the initial conversations for the project took off in the spring of 2021. At the time, I was president of a small but historic liberal arts college in Annapolis, Maryland called St. John's College, actually the third oldest college in America. It was founded in 1696. So I have the privilege of having been president of the third oldest college in America and now president of America's newest university, which is fun. But, you know, back in the spring of 21, you know, there were a group of us who were thinking a lot about, let's say, intersecting crises in higher education. You know, we're coming out of COVID and we're looking at what's happening in in higher education. We're seeing things like, you know, a million plus student drop off in terms of enrollments in higher education. A general the level of satisfaction with higher education is dramatically decreasing at that time and continues to decrease. It just seems to be a lot of, as you know, as my aunt Joanne would say, a lot of agita around what's going on in higher education. And so, so there were kind of a group of us who were just let's call it a brain trust of people, including Neil Ferguson and Barry Weiss, Arthur Brooks, Joe Lonsdale here in Austin, and a few others, who were noodling over the the question of whether or not higher education needed to be renewed from inside existing institutions, or whether or not an institution, that a new institution would spark a kind of potential renewal of higher education. So we had these conversations and I, you know, I was, I loved my job. You know, I was at a wonderful little place in beautiful Annapolis, Maryland. And, you know, one day finally, Barry Weiss and I were having a one-on-one call and she's like, we just need to open the new university. This It's time. There's so many things that could be solved if we approach these 
this issue in a kind of new and fresh way. And, and I said, great, Barry, I'm totally with you. I'm, I'm on board. I have to serve on the advisory board. You let me know what's going to happen. And, and she's like, no, and you have to be president of this institution. And I'm like, Barry, I'm like, come on, Barry. I, you know, I, I got a job. I got a family. You know, I can, you know, I'm not going to start a new, you know how much money it would take. And she's like, no, you need to do this because all the problems in higher education are your fault. And I thought, what are you talking about? I'm like, Barry, I thought, like, I thought I was one of the good guys. I thought you were talking to me because I, you know, I was on the right side of these ideas. And she's like, look, you're, a, you know, you spent your whole career in higher education. You've been a professor, a dean, a college president. You know where the fault lines are. You know where, what the problems are. And if people like you don't step up and do something about higher education today, who's going to do that? Who's going to step into the breach? And, you know, I was somebody who was, my life was literally transformed by access to university. I, my family, you know, I come from a Greek immigrant family. Neither of my parents had, you know, much formal education. I was the first in, in not only our immediate family, but our extended family to go to a university. And so, you know, universities really transformed my life. I mean, I went from the back of a Greek diner to being a college president. And so I understand how important and transformative university education should be. And so it really struck me. I'm like, I think I do have a responsibility to do more than I was doing at the time, even though I was part of a kind of wonderful institution. And, and so I agreed to jump into this. And so she's like, well, there's this guy in Austin we need to talk to called Joe Lonsdale, who had some ideas about, you know, why Austin should be a place where, we're, where, where this would fit. And so I flew down end of May and the group of us met in, in Austin and by July I had moved here. So it's obvious that you're looking at the educational marketplace in a big and bold, very different way. What are some of the innovations that you guys, you and your, your team there at the University of Austin see bringing to the university? What's new about the University of Austin? Well, I would say, you know, again, starting from the ground up, when you begin a university, you get to sort of question every established premise, every orthodoxy, sort of think afresh about what a university should be. In the U.S., we haven't really seen anything new in higher education, significantly new in about 130 years, to be honest. I mean, the last great flowering of institutional development in the United States was the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, where you saw, you know, this the rise of what we now think of as research universities, places like University of Chicago or Johns Hopkins, uh, Stanford, that were adopting a new model for higher education, which was the sort of German-centered research model, which said that you know universities are not just meant to be finishing schools for the upper class, but that they're meant really to be engines of um, you know intellectual dynamism. And at that point, we saw things introduced like majors, you know, and, uh, and research programs and that. But nothing's really changed in higher education since then. We haven't really shaken it up in any significant way. And it feels like this is a time where we can significantly re-envision what it is that we do in higher education. And that's one of, the, one of our missions is to kind of be a spark for that kind of change. I mean, we live in a world that you think about how different just the experience of learning is today with the technologies we have at hand or the kind of, you know, the you know, swimming in the middle of liquid modernity where everything is dynamic and fluid and constantly changing. And then we have these institutions that are in many ways static. I mean, I always say it's, it's ironic that we say that you're going to send, you know, a young person for a four-year undergraduate degree to prepare them for the rest of their lives. 
and yet they're taught by people who never left a university. Uh, you know, so the, thinking about these sort of, and again, I'm just as guilty as anybody. I've spent my career in university, so I don't uh, mean that, it, you know, meanly. It's just there's sort of some sort of irony there. So I'll give you one example of how we're sort of rethinking higher education. Right now, universities are essentially 120 credit delivery systems. Like, the, you know, the, the, we are mandated to have a four-year undergraduate program that delivers 120 credits. Now, you might stretch that into five or squeeze it into less, you know, but, but the basic format is there. And I personally think that that's too long. I think, you know, given, let's say the crisis of the financial crisis of higher education, education becomes so expensive that if we can find a way to deliver uh, a, a high quality undergraduate education in let's say three years, 90 credits, we would significantly impact the cost of higher education. Right, we'd cut it in half, really. If you think about it, if you locked off that fourth year, there's 25 percent that you're saving off the cost, and then in that fourth year, you're actually working and earning, and that, and so the kind of positive gain there would be tremendous. But we can't do that. I mean, we're we're not uh, the the system. We're not authorized through accreditors and that to have a shorter degree. So we have to kind of sit with the the current format. So, so we start thinking, okay, if we, rather than just think of four years as a kind of long and luxurious uh, stroll through, through your undergraduate years, what if we try to pack two significantly different experiences into that four years that would complement one another? And so what we've done essentially, this is either really, it's either like elegant and simple, or it's the stupidest idea I've ever had. But I said, it was like, look, let's take four years and let's divide them in half. And let's have the first two years be an intensive liberal arts education. You know, ask the great human questions, read philosophy and literature, look at the history of science, dive into mathematics, think about music theory, have a discussion-based education where all the students are essentially following the same course of studies, thinking deeply about what it means to be a human being, what are the great answers to those questions we've come up with. What are the answers that we need to come up with in the future? And so we've developed in the first two years, we call our intellectual foundations program. So all students will will uh, march through that program for the first two years. And then in the latter years, in years three and four, rather than traditional academic departments, we have interdisciplinary centers of inquiry that are thematic in nature. We have a center on economics, poli- politics, and history, a center on, on education and public service, STEM-related centers and that. And the idea is that rather than kind of go in a major and then just check a bunch of boxes, courses that you need to take to get a certificate of some sort, students become junior fellows in one of these centers, and they're working actively on research projects with professors, with people in industry, that their education is active and applied. So there's a radical difference between the two parts, the first two years and the second two years. But tying it all together, and I think this is probably the most innovative piece of our curriculum, is what we call the Polaris Project. The Polaris Project is a four-year self-directed, student-driven project where they have to come up with a moonshot idea. That um, you know, And the idea is to bring, as we say, bring their greatest gifts to the world's greatest needs. We want them to think about who they are and what it is that they hope to achieve in the world. And then rather than have that be something abstract, we're going to teach them how to um, conceive of, design, and execute on a project that will make that real. And this project goes through all four years, and it becomes kind of the, let's say, the, the inspirational spine of their education. So most universities are built around the idea that you 
you kind of you know, trundle along, pick up credits, do classes, and at the end of it, you sort of have this diploma, and that shows that you've achieved things. At the end of four years at University of Austin, okay, you will have actually created something of value in the world, or you will have moved significantly towards creating something of value. And I'll, I'll give an example of a project that a student, a prospective student recently shared with me. I, you know, this is a kid who loves the ancient world. He loves Greek and Latin. He's been studying it, you know, through high school and that. And, and I said, like, look, if you could come up with a dream project based on what you love, but that would have significant, significant impact in the world, what would it be? And he's like, I want to teach 100,000 people how to read ancient Greek. I'm like, that's amazing. You know, what a great project. Think about what it entails. It entails, you know, coming up, understanding pedagogy, mastering the language, thinking about what, what kind of platform will you use to teach? How are you going to find 100,000 people? What kind of business plan are you going to have? Is it going to be nonprofit, for-profit? So now this student then would come up with this idea in their first year and then mentored through our Polaris Center would be connected with, you know, experts and, you know, research resources and that. And, and we teach them everything they needed to do to sort of bring this plan to realization. And at the end of four years, they've probably gone pretty far towards achieving that. Maybe they're done with it, maybe not. That's a real education. That's taking intellectual passion, personal passion, and bringing something new into the world. And that's the sort of spirit of our enterprise. I wanted to just kind of pull back a little bit on something. You're starting your first undergraduate class in 15, 16 months, September 2024. But in the interim, you started offering something called the Forbidden Courses. You've offered it once. I wanted to go to it, but I'm too old. You're offering it again. Tell us about the Forbidden Courses. That's just a fascinating idea. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, that we we feel that universities have a responsibility to do is to teach students and faculty and the, and the culture at large how to be able to come together across differences and have difficult conversations about important things. So, you know, we all know that we are living in a culture that has become radically polarized and nobody thinks this is healthy. Yet we're not sure how to break through that, kind of how to break the fever. And I think universities have a particular responsibility because universities should be the home of intellectual pluralism. Should be the place where ideas of all different sorts come together in productive ways. So early on in our project, uh, you know, we were sort of just a few months into it. I challenged the team. I said, look, we have to, uh, you know, we can't just be planning to build a university. We should start doing things that will indicate to the world the kind of institution we want to be. So we said, you know, what's important to us? Having um, convening students and faculty around a table and teaching them how to discuss civilly things that matter to everybody. So we created these the summer program called the Forbidden Courses, and uh, you know, it seemed like a good name. If you tell young people something's forbidden, they'll be attracted to it. Um, but what we really meant about this, it wasn't so much that the topics themselves can't be discussed anywhere, but that the kind of conversations that we should be having seem to be preemptively forbidden by the ambient political environment we have uh, around us. So we, we put together a, a, a slate of courses around difficult things, you know, questions of capitalism or empire or gender or race. And we brought in some of the world's most interesting public intellectuals and professors 
people like Ayan Hersey Ali or, or uh, Deirdre McCloskey or bringing this year Walter Russell Mead and Glenn Lowry and people who have, you know, have been very public and vocal about important things. And we just said, let's invite some students and teach them how to have conversations across difference. So we, you know, we held this, the first program last summer in Dallas, because we didn't have a, a location that was suitable here. So we we're up in Dallas and we invited students from other universities to come partake in this. And I, you know, we didn't know, I mean, we were only a few months into the project. I didn't know if we were going to, we, if we're going to get students. So I said, let's keep it small, you know, 80 students, pilot program. Let's see if there's a, a need for this. We had thousands upon thousands of applications from all across the country and all across the world. We had students from Oxford and Cambridge and Germany and Australia and South Africa and practically, you know, every every part of our country. And most importantly, we had students who represented the broadest possible range of backgrounds and perspectives and politics and belief systems. And it was brilliant. They came together and they had you know, I, I, they had the kind of experience that they had hoped to have at universities. And many of us, many, many of them told us that. I mean, one young woman from, from Brown University who was a senior said, this, this is what I've been waiting four years to experience, these kind of conversations. And so we're doing it again this summer. We got another star-studded you know, cast of uh, faculty. The applications are through the roof. And we're really, really just thrilled to be able to offer this service. So... When we think about, obviously, as a school and education, something that we've talked extensively on the podcast about is talent, both here in Austin and broadly, and skills and how we both increase the, the local population. And one of the big fundamental challenges in training and education has just been the speed of technological change, right? Like, you may learn something and the next day it, it, it's gone, right? We, we, we've talked a lot about ChatGPT and how quickly that has kind of changed everything. So how do you go about designing programs that either try to keep up with that speed or that you're actually preparing students for a world that changes on a constant basis? Well, obviously you just ask ChatGPT and they tell you how to do that. Oh, there you go. Yes, that, that was, that's the answer. <laughs> you know, from, a, from the perspective of, of universities as institutions, universities are very slow moving. They're, even though most people would characterize universities as being on the progressive or liberal side politically, they're very conservative when it comes to their own institutional structure and format. And so the, one of the ways we're addressing this is institutionally and structurally. So as I you know, joked about earlier, you know, we have people who have never left universities teaching you know, the next generation how to live in a world that's moving at the speed of light, you know, um, but the institutions are moving at the speed of you know, a, a tortoise. So one of the things that we're doing is we're ensuring that our programmatic offerings, our courses include both scholars and practitioners. So, you know, layering into the academic experience, um, people who are doing things in the real world, whose life is primarily outside of universities and bringing them into the educational bloodstream, I think is very important and doing this intentionally. And then even our, our traditional scholars, let's say the, the professors we're challenging them to engage in project-based and applied learning in that as opposed to archival research or scholarly research. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, that's the kind of work I do. It's great for to have some people do that, but that can't be the exclusive 
domain of the university. So, so that's one thing. But around that, you know, I mentioned we don't have traditional departments and majors. One of the reasons we don't is so that we can remain really nimble. So we're going to have, we have sort of, let's say, three layers of academic units. And this, again, this is different than what you'd find at other universities. Our academic centers of inquiry are kind of, let's say, the core programs that over time will remain stable. They're all interdisciplinary, but it's, you know, where the kind of core classes will be. Wrapped around these programs are what we call institutes and initiatives. And the idea is an institute is something that we can put together quickly around, you know, particular issues that are self-funded and that will have a shelf life only as long as needed. So, you know, we're working, for example, right now on a future of energy institute. And so we're bringing together scholars and public intellectuals who think deeply about the future of energy. We could get this institute to stand up in a relatively short amount of time, yet this becomes an academic unit that students can take courses in and they can do research in and it supplements everything else they're learning. We're looking at an institute right now on this in, in terms of we're calling it the Institute for the Study of the Middle East. But the focus on this institute are peoples and groups in the Middle East that traditionally haven't been haven't had a, a place at the table at universities or sufficiently. So we have we're looking at a program in Assyrian studies and Coptic studies and Persian studies to so that we can bring together scholars to rethink and reframe something as complex as the politics and history of the Middle East. So these institutes, you know, come, they may last for two years, they may last for 20, but the idea is that that there's a kind of fluidity there. And then around there, we have even more, let's say, fluid entities called initiatives, which are meant to be one or two year projects that are staffed by, you know, faculty from around the country, around the world that will come in and join us for something really, really intense. And again, this becomes part of our academic offerings to students. So a student might be working you know, on an initiative, for example, one of the ones we're starting right now is about uh, adolescent flourishing, thinking about the impact of social media and the stresses of modern life on adolescent development. We're putting together a program that'll be between a year and two years long, an initiative that's gathering together 20 of the great scholars from around the world on this. It's only meant to be a year or two long, but our students will be participating in that learning and will be you know, doing research alongside these scholars. So by having let's say different academic units that have you know, different layers of fluidity and flexibility, we can continue to evolve our program in real time, even as we retain core elements. Well, and how do you see the actual mechanism and delivery of education itself? So UT Austin, the elephant or 800 pound gorilla at education in Austin, right? announced they had AI master's program recently that was going to be delivered online at the learner's own pace. So it actually was kind of more distributing education broadly. Do you see delivery models of education changing? And how is University of Austin thinking about that? I think it's inevitable that delivery of of information in general changes over time. I mean, it's it's changing, you know, even in terms of our own daily use, the way we we encounter the things we need to know about the world. I will say that I think at the undergraduate level in particular, in-person education is still essential. I think the kind of transformative education, if you're really going to shape, you know, young people into builders, innovators, entrepreneurs, there's a kind of human to human part of this that's essential and creating a learning community that is uh, intentional and intensive it's something that you that we still can only do together as human beings. Now, wrapped around that could be you know different modes of instruction, 
right? So there, there may be use for hybrid classrooms, flip classrooms, some online lectures and that. But the core experience still, uh, we believe, has to be in person. So we're, we're holding on to that, you know, really purposefully. I think it changes when you think about graduate education or continuing education programs where, you know, you can create a program that's you know, relatively compact on a, you know, that somebody can learn something on at their own pace in a relatively short period of time. But I will say that there's a difference between quantitative learning and qualitative learning. Quantitative learning is, you know, here are some discrete fact-based skills that we can transfer to you, you know, becoming an accountant, learning how to code, you know, these are things that that kind of learning, I think, calculus <laughs> lends itself more easily to, let's say, a media-driven environment online and that, or some sort of virtual environment. Qualitative learning is about um, not right or wrong answers, you know, hard-driven facts. Qualitative learning is about how human beings discern as human beings what's better or worse. You know, how do we understand the world and like all its complexity and explore those areas where the answers aren't very clear and can't be very clear, but we still have to come up with answers. So, you know, what is justice? <laughs> what is fairness? What are these things? That kind of learning really to have the deepest possible experience of answering those questions, you need to have deeply connected human relations so that you can build the bounds of trust that will allow you to have those conversations. So it's, it's you know, learning is all is not all one thing. And so thinking about different modes of delivery that are appropriate for different topics and different modes of exploration, I think are very important. So I want to come back a little bit to the origin story, but kind of bring it home to here. So I'm going to read something from the website. Texas is experiencing a historic boom in talent and capital. Austin in particular is a hub for builders, mavericks, and creators, the kind of people our university aims to attract and from whom we want to receive guidance. So you talked a bit about, you know, Barry Weiss calling you and saying you have to do this and, you know, you should come meet Joe Lonsdale. Why is University of Austin in Austin? The simplest answer is where else would you build a university today? I mean, doesn't it just make absolute sense if you're building a new university to do it in Austin? I mean, which is a place that's booming, growing, you know, where the primary purpose of universities is knowledge creation right? It's knowledge creation. I mean, K through 12 education is primarily about knowledge consumption, right? So you, when you're young, you learn the building blocks that you need to learn other things, numeracy, literacy, and then, then content starts to fill in. You learn about history or art or biology. And as you kind of progress up to high school, you start to get some rudimentary critical thinking skills and that. But through the whole K through 12 experience, essentially, you're consuming knowledge that's been prepared for you elsewhere. And that elsewhere is a university for the most part. University is where knowledge is created, discovered. And so, you know, being in a place that is just on fire with creative energy, that itself is attracting innovators and builders, aligns perfectly with the purpose of universities in general. And it aligns with our mission, which is to, to, not just graduate students with pieces of paper, but to graduate students who are going to build and innovate and create. So Austin's a perfect fit. I also think, you know, going back to that earlier topic of civil discourse, of trying to get people to 
break through the these sort of the, the, the political barriers we put up, the social barriers, cultural barriers. I mean, I think Austin exemplifies a place where where conversations still happen across differences. I mean, you know, being a, a very progressive and liberal city in a state that trends on the conservative side means that you're going to find people of all sorts and all opinions all around you. And I think Austin is one of the few places that hasn't let itself become a bubble in either direction politically. And that spirit, I think, is is radically important for not just for a new university, but for all universities. And so t- being able to tap into that is very, very important. And I, I will say, I mean, you know, our experience so far in the city, I mean, you know, as you might imagine, I get to meet lots and lots of people in and around Austin. I'm radically impressed with how varied Truly varied, not just sort of like blue, red, left, right, how truly varied the people are here in terms of their belief commitments, their ideas, their their politics and that, and how open and expressive they are and how, how comfortable it is to have conversations here, you know, that might not be easy to have in other locations. So, you know, Austin makes all the sense in the world to me. I mean, I, you know, I just, it, it seems like a slam dunk. It, it was actually... It- surprised us as well in terms of the the narratives versus reality. This is about a month ago, we had on the chairman and vice chairman of the Texas legislature's uh, innovation caucus. And one of the things that really attracted us to having that conversation is about the intersection of you know, policy, legislation, and regulation and innovation was the chairman was a Republican and the vice chairman was a Democrat. And the fact you had a bipartisan caucus that was actually getting things done, one, didn't fit the narrative that you would expect in a, you know, as you said, a more of a red state and the idea of something like that in D.C., you know, it doesn't fit in any of those. And it says that it's a lot more ability to work together than I think you would you get from the outside, which I think is something that was really, I, I said, it's not as bubble as you would see from what you read in the, the headlines, which is, which is great. I think that's a, it's a real bonus thing for the region. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, the truth is on the ground in Austin, you find people who are open, curious, cooperative. And I think it comes from a kind of genuine, I think it comes from the the kind of inherited culture of Austin, which is, I think, has always been a little askew from the normal culture, (laughs) normative culture, let's say, in in the U.S., has been proudly different. And uh, I think it's, it's partially that. And I also think it's, you know, this is a culture that is eager to question orthodoxies. And, uh, you know, I always say that, uh, you know, universities, for example, are places where heterodoxy and orthodoxy need to meet, where received ideas and new ideas come into contact with each other. And I think Austin's that kind of place. I think also, you know, the you know, one of our one of our guiding principles at, at the university is civil discourse. And I think civil discourse is an often misunderstood term. You know, we tend to use it today to mean something like two people who have radically different political opinions can be in a room together and not kill each other. That's civil discourse, you know. Kind of a low bar. But it's, it's a very low bar. And I think, <laughs> but I think that's you know, profoundly too common, that understanding. But what civil discourse really is, it comes from, you know, from civil, from civic, from our, our common lived life. It's the discourse that we need to have to build better communities, to build our civil society. And the elements of civil discourse 
are not very complicated. You know, there, there's sort of three elements. I mean, one is that, you know, you have to have intellectual humility. You know, we're all human beings. We're all trying to figure out this life together. We don't really know very much, each of us. I mean, I have a PhD. There, I, don't, I couldn't explain to you how my television works. I couldn't do it. You know, I could explain to you simple things in life. And so, you know, the things I know are narrow and few, and, I, and we all live life like that, yet we try to see the big picture. So intellectual humility tells us that we need to learn together. We need to t- turn to others and sort of in a composite way, a collective way, a kind of mosaic, understand the world um, in, in a fuller sense. The second characteristic is, you know, we're all creatures of logos, I would say, rational creatures, and therefore we all deserve to recognize the dignity of all human beings. We all have equal dignity and an equal right to participate in the civil conversation. And the third element is a passion for truth, right? That's what human beings are. We're, human beings are the way that the universe comes to know itself. Like we're, we're the way the universe looks back and tries to figure itself out. I mean, that's ingrained who we are. So we have a passion for figuring out what's true. We don't always get there. I mean, we rarely get there. But it's something that should drive us as human beings. So if you put together intellectual humility, you know, the commitment to the dignity of all people in a conversation and a passion for truth, you wrap that together, that's civil discourse, and that's how you build a civil society. And that's an amazing way of describing it. And it's it's interesting because Jason and I have talked a lot about the culture of Austin, more than just keeping it weird and more than just the speed of Elon, but the ability to have those conversations is incredibly important. And you're not going to find any disagreement here about how Austin is the right place for the University of Austin. I mean, we're relatively new like you are, and we came to Austin for a reason. It's a great place for those innovators and builders. And part of of what you've talked about is how important a university is within that. And the University of Austin is going to be different in terms of how it fits into this landscape. So talk a little bit more about how you see the University of Austin fitting into Austin's innovation ecosystem. We talked a little bit about where the university is going to be and what's going to be around it. Yeah, I mean, you know, our intention, again, is to create a, a culture internally in the university of innovation, entrepreneurship, a culture of creation and building, and our intention around the university is to foster that kind of culture. I often say this, I mean, this sounds, okay, this sounds radically overly ambitious. So just forgive me. All right. But I, you know, if you're dreaming up a university, you have to dream big. And so when I met with Jay Hartzell at UT, who's, um, who's a wonderful conversation partner and all this, I'm like, Jay, just let me frame this this way. All right. We're starting the university in your backyard. I'm sorry. We're calling it the University of Austin. It creates confusion. I'm sorry. He did look at me. He goes, that's fine, Pano. He goes, just tell me one thing. I said, what? He goes, are you going to have a football team? And I said, no, we're not going to have a football team. We said, okay, we can still talk. So the way, I said, Jay, think of it this way. Um, every great city, every you know alpha city or however you characterize it uh, in the world has a, a world-class public university and world-class private university or many private universities. And I said, our goal is to be the Stanford to your Berkeley. That's what we want to achieve. Now, again, I, I know that sounds remarkably ambitious at this stage. Talk to me in 100 years. We might still be able to talk if the transhumanists have their way. Talk to me in 100 years, and, and we'll see where we are. I think we're not going to be that far from that. 
But using Stanford as a model, you know, when Stanford started, it was just thousands of acres of dirt in the middle of nowhere. You know, there was, you know, the city of San Francisco was 45 minutes away. You know, it was an underdeveloped area, and they had the foresight to create an institution not only thinking of it as a university, but thinking of it as an accelerator for development. And so as, you know, as Stanford took off, especially in the tech areas we know, they fostered around the university on Sand Hill Road and elsewhere uh, incubators that would complement the work of the university. And thus Silicon Valley was born. All right. It's our intention as we build the university to uh, have as many possible um, partnerships and collaborative relationships with companies and organizations and that who want to tap into the dynamism of a new university, who want to co-develop programs with us, who want to intern our students, who want to, who want to take those Polaris projects we have and help students bring them to fruition. So the spirit of our project maps on very closely to the spirit that's developing here in Austin, not just tech. I mean, I think industry in general, I mean, there's one of the most fascinating projects you guys probably know about this company called Icon that, that laser prints houses, right? That to me is like a perfect symbol of Austin, right? You have somebody who, um, you know, is like, okay, we have this thing called, how do I bring my, my greatest gifts to the world's greatest need? The world needs affordable housing. And, you know, I know something about technology and I have this idea that if we do these little laser printers, you know, where you and now we're printing out coffee mugs or something. What if we built huge ones and printed houses and did it, you know, with you know, concrete instead of plastic? And the idea is born and it's born here in Austin. And this this beautiful thing is happening that brings together, you know, both a sense of responsibility to others in society, technological innovation but also like real industrial heft. I mean, these are real houses being built in the world, right? One of the things that, that I, we always think is great is an interesting thing about uh, Icon, and definitely we're big fans of the company, is not just that they represent this kind of great convergence tech, right? It's not just, it's this construction, it's the industrial, we're actually building things. But then it's also that the, the deployment here, that they are actually, you had the, their first house here, but now in Georgetown, they're building the first 3D printed neighborhood. So the first 3D printed neighborhood in the world is in Austin. So you're having this deployment of the future here. 100%. And I, you know, if I have my way, we'll have the first 3D printed dormitories in the world at, 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 uh, at the University of Austin. So I'm sure Jason Ballard will take your call on that. <laughs> That's right. I have no doubt about it. Pano, this has been a great conversation. We always ask guests a final question about what's next, but in a lot of ways, this entire conversation has been about what's next. I don't want to look 100 years into the future, but the Texas Bicentennial is 2036. That's a good number. What does the University of Austin look like a dozen years from now? A dozen years from now, there is a, a thriving campus uh, in, in the Austin area that is attracting uh, scholars and practitioners and young people from across the country and across the world who are building things that we not that we haven't yet dreamed of that you know that things that are just beyond the, the horizon of our comprehension now and that's our goal is to to be creating not simply solutions for the future but but things that are going to change the future. 
and that that this institution will be a hub for that, a home for that. And my hope is as well that we're a hub in different ways, that UATX, University of Austin, is inspiring new universities and new institutions across the country and across the world. I mean, in many ways, part of our mission is to prove that you can build a new university today, that you can do this, that, you know, even though it sometimes might seem intimidating to imagine the kind of resources you need and the kind of planning you need and the time and all that, that it's doable. And as we kind of snowplow our way forward and get this done, it's inspiring other projects behind us. And I, I know about this because I get the calls all the time from people all across the country, the world. We're like, you know, we'd love to start a new university here. Can you, what are your insights? You know, what have you learned? Can you give us a hand? And so I think inspiring that kind of innovation so that there's a whole new constellation of institutions, some of which look very different from us. Some may look similar in that, but the world is populated um, by the next generation of universities. Uh, That to me is a great success. Well, I happen to know someone who probably will be in that 2036 graduating class. He's nine years old right now, and I think he'd be (laughs) perfect for this. Excellent. Pano Canelos, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Appreciate you joining us here on Austin Next. Thank you for welcoming me to the the conversation and to Austin. Great to talk with you guys. Thanks. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.